Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while I give you vintage science. This week I found the oldest Diffusion recording I own. So here, digitally squeezed, fresh from the plastic or magnetic rust encoded compact cassette, is the show formerly called Discovery. With all the science fit to broadcast from the 9th of March 1999. This may have been my first radio broadcast 20 years ago. Here's your host, Carol Oliver. Welcome to Discovery, the national science show. Discovery is the show where science meets art, science meets culture, art meets culture, art and culture complement science, science becomes cultured, and art becomes scientific. I'm Carol Oliver. In this edition, we'll examine the state of Australia's drinking water, Hear about chronic fatigue syndrome and will we survive the third millennium? First up, we have the news with Deborah Lum. Rio de Janeiro has a pet problem. There are 15 puppies and 45 kittens born to every human infant. Residents and animal protection groups have clamoured to the city to find humane ways to reduce the pet population. Their answer is Castromobile. It offers free castration and spaying for cats and dogs in the poor sections of the city where the growing numbers of stray animals threaten health and safety. Their strategy is both more humane and practical than catching and killing the animals, as for every dog caught, it may, be, may have mated with two mutts. One is killed, but somewhere else at least 10 puppies are born. The city has specially trained 54 police to handle the animals, including the often vicious pit bulls, which have terrorised beachgoers. Castromobile will be accompanied by a media campaign aimed at persuading wealthier residents to have their pets fixed too. Sherry Moore is waiting for a heart transplant. While she waits each day for the call, that will tell her a donor heart has been found. She prays. Prayer is common among people seeking to ease intense pain. But now some experts are asking how much it helps. The answer, according to Columbia University in New York, is not much, though researchers do not deny prayer offers comfort and hope. Richard Sloan, one of the Columbia researchers, says what they shouldn't expect is that religious activity is going to promote their health. Sloan discourages doctors from encouraging prayer as a treatment. Researchers insist they're not attacking prayer. They just want people to know that scientifically there's no real proof that prayer heals. But religious leaders say it's not about science or even the healing of the body, but faith, hope, and the healing of the spirit. Scientists at CSIRO Molecular Science and the Prince of Wales Hospital are looking at modifying bee venom to develop a treatment for cancer that has fewer side effects than other drugs currently used to fight the disease. The venom in the bee sting contains an active ingredient called melatonin that kills cells by slicing through the wall of the cell. 
The structure of melatonin has been modified to remove the part that causes allergic reactions while maintaining the ability of the molecule to kill the cells. Another problem the researchers have to get around is targeting the killing activity of melatonin to cancer cells only and not to normal healthy cells. They can achieve this by attaching it to an antibody molecule that specifically recognises cancer cells. These are called immunotoxins or magic bullets. One of the reasons why there are so many side effects to, with chemotherapy drugs is that they also attack normal cells, and this problem also limits the amount of drug that can be administered. This means the drug cannot be as effective as it could be. These new cancer drugs could attack a wide range of cancer cells. Such drugs have already been developed with plant and bacterial toxins, but they are too toxic for clinical use. The melatonin from bee venom is much less toxic than these. Although there is still some time from clinical application of the drug, they are taking fundamental research observations to develop potential drugs to fight a major disease. That was Deborah Lum with the news. Australian drinking water, does it floridinically rush through our taps aiming to refresh? That is, in the case in Sydney last year, caused a lot of people to rush to the toilet instead. Or is there an effective ab absence of fecal bacteria and chemicals in our water systems? A recent survey of 16 water authorities around Australia conducted by Choice magazine indicates quite a positive adherence to standards in our water supply. But researchers say they still need to be consistent and legally binding standards for drinking water in Australia, as there are many potentially hazardous contaminants in our environment. Ruby Arches spoke to the development manager of the Australian Consumer Association, Mr Norm Carruthers, on just what can go wrong with our water supply. One of the problems we have with um, contamination in water supplies is that it's not always immediately obvious that a problem has arisen. Um, when you see some of the uh, unpleasant colours that might appear in your water or smell uh, a smell that you don't like or taste is a bit off, it may simply indicate um, what are known as a whole class aesthetic problem that have nothing to do with the safety of the water supply. On the other hand, as we found in Sydney last year, you can have cryptosporidium in the water and you can't see, taste or smell it, and it's very hard to even find it scientifically. So there's a real difficulty for water managers, and um, we have to actually upgrade our scientific skills to some extent, but we also have to uh, go back to the good old ways of managing water, and that is making sure things don't get in there in the first place. In the Choice Report, it was stated that while the results were good, there were authorities using outdated standards. Scientifically, does that make a difference to levels of contamination? It does, to some extent. The, the most important thing about the particular guidelines that are used is that the 1996 guidelines took a whole new approach to water management and really tried to emphasise the importance of layers of protection going right back to the source water and making sure it was protected by a number of barriers to contamination and then adding in the obvious things such as disinfection and filtration, management of the water to the customer, and 
um, a, a high degree of openness in uh, reporting what sort of monitoring and management is going on, what sort of results that's getting, and engaging in a dialogue with the customers to uh, sort out just what sort of level of uh, quality they want and what they're prepared to pay for. As you said, signs of contamination may not necessarily be that obvious. How do we protect ourselves then? Like, What about water filters, for example? Well, that's a difficulty too. Uh, water filters are extremely good at um, cleaning up some of the aesthetic characteristics, the taste and smell in particular, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with using them if that's the only reason you're using them. However, if you were trying to use filtration at home as a uh, protector against um, bacteria and other microorganisms, you could be deluding yourself. You've got um, no certainty that thing is actually performing as you want it to, and you have no real resources to test that and prove that it's reliable, even if it started out to be when you first bought it. So, you know, they can bring a high level of uh, false sense of security and uh, can run a risk, perhaps, of um, uh, making some of the contamination worse because an overloaded, um, out-of-date filter cartridge might, in fact, uh, suddenly release a higher concentration of bacteria into what you're drinking than you would otherwise get. What are the typical bacteria that we see in our water supply should something go wrong? Well, most of the things that occur are originally sourced from some sort of warm-blooded animal, either um, you know, humans or, or other animals that um, we use uh, as pets or uh, farm animals or so on. And usually it's from uh, feces from these animals, including humans, that contain most of the uh, microorganisms that include the bacteria, the um, viruses in some cases, and the um, protozoa. And uh, all of these things uh, can often be signposted by simply checking for a very easy-to-find organism that's called coliforms. They're, they're a very large class, easy-to-detect bugs, but if you find them, there's reason to believe you might have other contamination. So they're, they're sort of like a first sign. You look for them always, um, very often in a very large water supply where you've got funding to be able to do that. And if you find something, you start going looking for the next level of risk, and usually that common thing to find is a, a thing called E. coli, um, which can make people quite sick. It's uh, one of the things that's been found in food sometimes when it's been food poisoning. And uh, it's quite easy to kill off with chlorine. So they are the sort of things you go for first. Um, but when they're present, there's also a risk that you might have viruses like hepatitis B, C, uh, A, whatever, um, and cryptosporidium, giardia, and some of the other things like that. So you, you're sort of seeing the signs from testing for the easy things, coliform and E. coli, to make sure that, um, A, you immediately go back to your source and try and identify where you're getting this stuff from, and B, you treat the water immediately to try and kill anything that's there. I guess it's probably um, okay then to say you can treat water if you've got viral or bacterial particles in there, but in the statement that you made, you also said, look, you know, a lot of groundwater supplies in rural areas have high concentrations of fertiliser runoff. Yes, it's a real problem. It, it might be fertiliser runoff, um, also uh, animal waste runoff and uh, human waste from sewage plants that are on rivers that feed back into the, the water supply. Uh, all those things um, 
can lead to very high levels of nitrates. Um, they might not in themselves be much of a risk, um, but I, I, I gather one of the main problems is that they can be converted to nitrites, and um, then you have a potential risk for, for infants and, and pregnant mothers. Um, the nitrates themselves are, are a food for things that um, we normally call blue-green algae, and um, the nitrates and, and phosphorus that comes from human waste and, and fertiliser uh, can result in these algal blooms, as we call them. The algae aren't actually algae. They look like algae, but they're a bacteria, just another one of these bugs, a cyanobacteria because of the blue-green colour. And um, they in themselves, not necessarily harmful, but they produce in their own waste a toxin, like a lot of bacteria, and that toxin can... Uh, make people sick and it can also cause serious damage to people's livers so yeah when we're aware that there's a algal bloom and you can see the blue green algae in the water supply you must never drink it and you can't actually uh, most cases filter it or um, boil it or do anything like that to get rid of it you need uh, a much higher level of technology to remove those things that was Ruby Arches talking with Norm Carruthers of the Australian Consumer Association about the quality of drinking water in Australia. You're listening to an antique edition of Diffusion Science Radio from 1999 when it was known as the Discovery Science Show. This is Discovery, the national science program heard across Australia and brought to you nationally by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. David Blank listened to it, the experts describing what we need to do in order to survive the third millennium. Recently, a conference on surviving the third millennium was held at the University of Technology in Sydney. The speakers from academia, government and private business emphasized that our dependence on fossil fuels and wasteful land use practices must change if civilization is to survive the third millennium. Dr. Ian Lowe of Griffith University pointed out that energy use in Australia is 50% more inefficient than the average of industrialized nations, and so there is substantial room for improvement. For example, Australian refrigerators use three to four times more energy than comparable models in Europe. Professor Michael Archer of the Australian Museum discussed that land degradation from unsustainable agricultural practices is costing Australia $2 billion per annum. These practices have also contributed to significant losses in biodiversity. For example, in New South Wales, 77 out of the 130 mammal species are listed as threatened. Professor Archer also announced that the Australian Museum will be starting two new centers for promoting sustainable land use. It was not all gloom and doom. Practical solutions were also discussed. The CSIRO Energy Technology Division is working on a hybrid solar power and natural gas generator that is twice as efficient and is less polluting than coal-fired generators, which supply most of Australia's electricity. A prototype will soon be constructed on the outskirts of Sydney. The most efficient solar cell in the world for generating electricity was on display. This device was produced by the Photovoltaic Special Research Center at the University of New South Wales. The device is based on thin film technology and uses much less silicon than other solar cells, and so it is also much cheaper to produce. The electricity produced will be cost-converted with fossil fuels. 
Agriculture in Australia depends heavily on water irrigation because of the hot, dry climate. A problem with irrigation in such a climate is that the water evaporates quickly, leaving salt behind in the soil. A salt buildup in the soil can make the soil unproductive for agriculture. John Blackwell and colleagues from the CSRO Land and Water Division have developed a drainage system that efficiently separates the salt from the soil. The system is so efficient that even sewage effluents can be used to irrigate crops. Sunflowers have now been grown in a pilot system for two seasons in western New South Wales. They were delicious. Surviving the Third Millennium was one of the Horizons of Science forums organized by the Center of Science Communications at the University of Technology, Sydney, and by the Center for the Public Awareness of Science at the Australian National University. That was Daily Blank reporting on the conference Surviving the Third Millennium. Ian Wolfe went to the International Chronic Fatigue Syndrome Conference and this is his report. Imagine having an invisible illness with randomly fluctuating symptoms that affect your brain, your immune system, your digestive system and your muscles. You often feel as exhausted as someone with severe flu has run 10 blocks and not slept for a fortnight. You're in pain, you're vague and forgetful, you're regularly too sick for your normal life and it just won't go away. Nobody knows why. Almost nobody believes you are really ill or even that it matters. A succession of doctors have told you that there's nothing wrong with you. You look well. They call it ME or CFS, myalgic encephalopathy or chronic fatigue syndrome. On the last Friday and Saturday of February this year, the Alison Hunter Memorial Foundation for Research into CFS organised an international medical conference titled The Challenge of Chronic Illness, a role for complex infections and channelopathy. The idea was to get researchers from around the world to present their latest findings on the probable causes and mechanisms at work in ME. The Friday session was for scientists and physicians. I attended the Public Information Day on the Saturday. The first speaker, the New South Wales Shadow Minister for Health, Mrs. Gillian Skinner, MP, had this to say. The serious impact of the disease for people uh, with CFS is compounded by ignorance and dismissive attitudes by people for whom those patients 
Associate Professor Tim Roberts from Newcastle University was our MC for the day. In his introduction, he teased us with a brief mention of the connection between chocolate cravings and ME. Due to the power of suggestion, everybody in the audience started craving chocolate. Had anyone thought of to sell fundraising chocolate, lots of money could have been raised. Professor Garth Nicholson from the US Institute for Molecular Medicine pointed out similarities between Gulf War illness, CFS and fibromyalgia syndrome. Mycoplasmas are a strange form of bacteria which has only been possible to culture in laboratories in recent years. Professor Nicholson has found infections in 60% of CFS patients and in 45% of Gulf War illness patients. Mycoplasma infection can be treated by six rounds of six-week courses of antibiotics, followed by nutritional support. Professor Nicholson became involved in CFS research when his stepdaughter came home from the Gulf War with Gulf War illness. Professor Kenny Demirvere from Belgium spoke about an interferon-induced enzyme he found high concentrations of in CFS patients called 25A RNAs. The amount of enzyme seems to correlate to the type of immune symptoms suffered. RNA has a natural function of attacking viral RNA that seems to go wrong and attack body cell RNA. He's trialling a treatment of 24 weeks of the drug Amplogen, which seems to reduce neurocognitive symptoms and improve the quality of life for people in the trial. Simon Molesworth QC has a son who suffers from CFS. He says that the cognitive behavioural therapy commonly offered in Australia as psychotherapy for CFS is legally malpractice because it ignores the physical side of the illness. And the disbelief of the physician is harmful as the blame for psychosomatic illness is laid against the patient or their family. A similar thing happened with ulcers, which are now treated with antibiotics. He's proposing a central database registry of everyone with CFS, along with their case histories, as the only way serious work on finding a treatment or cure can progress efficiently. As I was driving, quietly the car was rolling like a bullet. Australian psychologist Dr Michael King told us how many CFS patients had been sent to him by GPs to be sorted out, which of course for a physical illness he was unable to do. He emphasised that a psychologist's office is not the place for someone with CFS. The presence of cognitive dysfunction clearly differentiates CFS from clinical depression. Dr Abhijit Chaudhuri from Glasgow believes that the fluctuating symptoms of CFS are similar to channelopathy diseases. Channelopathy is when there is a problem with the exchange of ions across cells. This results in easily excited cells in the nerves, brain, heart and muscles. He also referred to an American Journal of Medicine article which briefly mentions that in many cases of CFS and seasonally affected disorder, there's a connection between chocolate cravings and mood swings that indicate a lack of serotonin in the brain. People with a lack of serotonin only craved brown chocolate. Research into the medically important elements of chocolate is continuing. Professor John Martin from the Center for Complex Infectious Diseases in the USA is working on stealth viruses, or as he calls them, Nature's Biological Weapons Program which he believes is a major cause of CFS. He's cultured a virus from a, from a patient's brain and found RNA sequences similar to cytomegalovirus in African green monkeys, which is known to have contaminated the polio vaccine at one time. He mentioned an epidemic in the Mojave Valley where many people died and the doctors became infected, as did the patient's pets. He advocates treatment with antiviral drug gancyclovir. 
And finally, advocate Ted Shaw spoke at length about the misdiagnosis of CFS as psychological disorders and the grievous harm that can be caused as a result. A child in Queensland was diagnosed with somatoform disorder and put on a graded exercise program and cognitive behavioural therapy. The doctors were following the draft clinical guidelines for CFS. When her mother insisted the child was physically ill, the child was taken from her family. The Pfizer drug company has produced the Sphere Hickey checklist for GPs to diagnose mental illness by the numbers and, of course, prescribe their drugs. Any positive answer to questions about common symptoms such as headaches, sore throats, diarrhoea, back pain, fever, dizziness and nausea will be taken to indicate a psychological disorder. Ted suggests that people contact their state and federal MPs to combat these issues. You're listening to Discovery, the National Science Show, broadcast nationally on ComradeSat. If you've enjoyed what you've heard on Discovery this evening and would like to uh, give us some feedback, send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We'd like to take a few minutes here at Discovery to say farewell to filmmaker Stanley Kubrick, who died on Sunday, the 7th of March. He was 70 years old. Maestro Kubrick has touched the hearts and imaginations of many of us here at the Discovery team. We've mentioned and, of course, used sound bites from many of his films, in particular his poetic, lyrical vision, 2001, A Space Odyssey. In the meantime, given that this station appears to have been taken over by a bunch of pinko communist subversives, I would like you to keep these immortal words from General Jack Ripper firmly in mind. Sit back and allow communist infiltration, communist indoctrination, communist subversion, and the international communist conspiracy to sap and impurify all of our precious bodily fluids. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I edited this edition of Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the Community Radio Network. Next week, Jasleen Singh will talk about nanotechnology with DNA origami. I'm Ian Wolfe. That's all we have time for on this edition of Discovery, the National Science Show. Contributing to the program were Ruby Archis, Deborah Lum, David Blank and Ian Wolfe. Discovery was produced in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney by Lachlan Watchmore. Given us technical support was Gina Satori. Discovery is broadcast nationally via ComradeSat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Carol Oliver. Please join us for more science next week. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.